20 years after the attacks on 9-11 and with the United States withdrawing from Afghanistan, how will terrorism evolve in the future? This is Brief Before Impact. I am Matt Parker. I wanted to just start off today's episode doing some reflection on 9-11. After 20 years, we've all seen the memorials, services, and words by current and former political leaders discussing the devastating attacks 20 years ago. America remembers watching the devastation we saw on our television screens, those innocent people suffering those Terrible deaths in New York, in Washington, D.C., outside of Pennsylvania as well. We all remember what we were doing. I remember what I was doing during 9-11. I was a very young man. I was only 14 in 2001. Not completely appreciating or understanding the impact of the events of that day. Even today, for that matter, some people are so too young to even have a memory of 9-11. What struck me most recently was of those 13 Marines and Navy personnel that were killed in Afghanistan in the last few weeks, some of them were so young they were born after the attacks on 9-11. Yet their desire to serve their country after 20 years of counterterrorism operations just reminds us how deep this patriot, deeply patriotic our fellow countrymen can be. And... During 9-11, the country was shaken. It was. It became a great realization that America, despite its power and wealth, is vulnerable to devastating attack. That being said, we were unified. There was a certain common thread between all of us, you know, circling the flag and hand-in-hand hand praying together. For the souls and families that were just lost. And now we watch this withdrawal from Afghanistan. America's troops at the time of this recording are entirely out of the country. And we've all witnessed just the chaotic scenes that have uh, developed there in that country from thousands of people, including American citizens and Afghan allies who supported us the last 20 years in the fight against terrorism. You know, struggling to stay alive, struggling to get out of that country. You know, many have criticized President Biden's handling with the draw. I think that criticism is well found. We look after just a war that's cost thousands of lives, over 2,000 American service members, and trillions of dollars in military spending. Recently, a, a Pew Research Center study found that 69% of U.S. adults say the United States has mostly failed to achieve its goals in Afghanistan. I'd be curious what Americans believe our goals were in Afghanistan, if they could articulate them in, in one way. Was it to combat terrorism? Was it to build a Western-style democracy? That, that question is even up for debate as we speak. What were we doing there in the first place? And that question is connected to the style and manner of this withdrawal. But despite the pain that we've started in 2001 and witnessed recently with the withdrawal, there, there was this great unity that existed between Americans in those early days. There's a great amount of patriotism. 
And again, a Pew Research study had showed that patriotic sentiment surged in the aftermath of 9-11. After the U.S. and its allies launched airstrikes against Taliban and al-Qaeda forces in early October 2001, 79% of adults said they had displayed an American flag. A year later, a 62% majority said they had often felt patriotic as a result of the 9-11 attacks. Moreover, the public largely set aside political differences and rallied in support of the nation's major institutions, as well as its political leadership. In October 2001, 60% of adults expressed trust in the federal government, a level that not reached in the previous three decades nor approached in the two decades since then. George W. Bush, who had become the president just nine months earlier, after a fiercely contested election, saw his job approval rise 35 percentage points in the space of just three weeks. In late September 2001, 86% of adults, including nearly all Republicans, about 96%, and a sizable majority of Democrats, 78%, approved of the way Bush was handling his job as president. Americans also turned to religion and faith in large numbers. In the days and weeks after 9-11, most Americans said they were praying more often. In November 2001, 78% of religion's influence in American life was increasing, more than double the share who said that eight months earlier, the public trust in the federal government, the highest level in four decades. I bring up all these numbers and statistics to put it into your mind. The incredible amount of unity that can be created from a devastating type of adversity that we experienced on 9-11. Americans rally together when they face overwhelming odds, an unknown future. They get together and they will see the things through to the end because ultimately there are symbols in our country from our American flag to our constitution to our institutions, both government and non-government, that keep us bound together from the community level all the way up to our representatives at the national level. So when we evaluate current day geopolitics, withdrawing from Afghanistan and more greatly the implications of this region, we have to look at what was America doing in those early days to keep the country secure from future terrorist attacks and moving forward from now, post-withdrawal, what we'll be doing. That's the idea where we'll be exploring today. And originally, in those early weeks and months, the response to keeping the U.S. secure, it, it immediately began taking shape. This was started off from just the government building out a massive infrastructure, that which included, for example, the Department of Homeland Security, you know, all in the name of protecting against terrorist attacks. You know, Bush administration, they empowered the FBI and its partners at the CIA, the National Security Agency, and the Pentagon to take the fight to al-Qaeda. We all know the military invaded Afghanistan, which had been a haven for the group. The CIA hunted down al-Qaeda operatives around the world. And now on the home front, at the time, FBI Director Robert Mueller, he shifted some 2,000 agents to counterterrorism work, and he tried to transform the FBI from a crime-fighting first organization into more of an intelligence-driven organization that prioritized combating terrorism and preventing the next attack. 
As we fast forward to today, 2021, and the U.S. has withdrawn from Afghanistan, where America's fight against terrorism really started, I want to explore that question of where will counterterrorism go on from here? How will terrorist groups train, plan, and execute operations now that America's military and intelligence assets are no longer on the ground in Afghanistan? Let me play you a quick clip. It's a briefing from Charles Lister. He's the director of Middle East Institute Program on Countering Terrorism and Extremism. And Charles describes the implications of the Taliban now controlling Afghanistan and the strengthening of al-Qaeda. It's really not a stretch to say I think this is the biggest development for al-Qaeda since 9-11. After years of relentless counterterrorism pressure, al-Qaeda's central leadership has been in a desperate state. Ayman al-Zawahiri is either sick, dead, or in hiding, and an array of senior leaders have been killed in recent years. But now, with a Taliban victory in Afghanistan, al-Qaeda has the breathing space in which they can potentially recover and rebuild for the first time, I think, in 20 years. And they have found and recovered their most prized safe haven in Afghanistan in which to do that. Worse still, of course, the United States has effectively dissolved most, if not all, of our intelligence infrastructure in Afghanistan, which means facing down a potentially recovering al-Qaeda. We will be doing that blind. So given how much we've achieved over the last several years, this debacle really is a remarkable misstep. Now, if indeed terrorist groups are bolstered by the Taliban's victory in Afghanistan and now have the space to plan operations against the West and the United States, There are a few attacks that I want to really drill down onto and highlight for you to keep in mind moving forward. The three I'm just going to talk about today are cyber attacks, biological weapon attacks, and lastly, the use of drones in warfare. So let me provide just some basic context of these types of attacks with recent examples of how each have been utilized. This data is coming from the Atlantic Council, starting with drones or remotely piloted vehicles. Previous terrorist attacks have harnessed commercially available aerial platforms, you know, i.e. drones, that provide their personnel a, a safe distance from the kinetic repercussions of their attacks. That's recently been indicated in an attack that was against the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad and multiple other locations. Terrorist organizations can be expected to increase their use of capabilities, which provide kind of a, quote, force protection benefits for their operators as the drones become cheaper and more accessible. I'll give you another example. And if you weren't keeping a close eye on the events in Syria, terrorist groups there were actually creating their own homemade drones that were look like a very small miniature airplane you'd go buy like at a hobby store. And what they were doing was attaching hand grenades as well as essentially a GoPro uh, to the, the craft. And they would fly this drone uh, above American and allied forces looking down via this GoPro or whatever type of camera system they were using. And, uh, and letting go of the grenade essentially almost like you would see an, you know, a fighter jet dropping his bomb this drone was able to release the hand grenade in a very rudimentary way. It was just trying to time it based upon the height and speed of the, of the craft they were flying. So that was some of the early days of them creating their own types of drones. Drones become more prevalent on the commercial market. They're going to be continue to be utilized in any type of terrorist attack, whether on some kind of 
state uh, or some type of infrastructure like we saw in Saudi Arabia against um, their oil barracks, or for example, something against uh, a group of you know sport you know attendees at a large sporting facility at a soccer game or football stadium, for example. There are multiple opportunities for terrorists to use drones. And that being said, before I move on, there are an there's an entire industry standing up in the defense and protecting people from drone attacks. The second I want to touch on is bioterrorism. Now, if anyone's living in the post-COVID world, we can understand, I hope, the implications of a biological virus, certainly, or any type of biological agent. Now, biological agents have consistently garnered attention from international terrorist organizations just due to their effectiveness and the relative affordability as a weapon of mass destruction. In looking at the level of global disruption caused just by the COVID-19 pandemic, it's easily conceivable that terrorist organizations will energize their efforts in this area. Bioterrorism's disruptive effects would be non-kinetic in nature, causing economic and social damage, as the COVID-19 pandemic has amply demonstrated. These non-kinetic actions alter and they blur the lines of traditional targets for a terrorist organization, you know, compared to traditional kinetic activities like a bomb or an explosive. Since targets can be physically distant, dispersed, or aggregated, and entirely opportunistic, while still being high value to a terrorist organization. Last I wanted to touch on was a cyber attack. If you're keeping your eye on the news or at least looking at the data, cyber attacks are happening constantly. And this is both from your kind of criminal organizations to the nation state level, and certainly terrorist organizations are using them as well. And there's now really near universal awareness of the devastation of cyber attacks can inflict on things society otherwise takes for granted, you know, like a, such as a financial system, energy, food security, or even power to our homes. And to that, list, we, we need to add vulnerabilities introduced by increasing our everyday reliance on you know the internet of things, which creates a weakness that bad actors can target to put ordinary lives into disarray or even physical danger. Some vulnerabilities are current headline news. If, news, if you think back on the solar winds hack, uh, which is ironically just here in Austin, Texas, or even the colonial pipeline ransomware attack. Lastly, something I really touched was the JBS SA cyber attacks. Uh, JBS SA, they're the largest meat producer globally. They were forced to shut down all of its U.S. beef plants, wiping out output from facilities that supply almost a quarter of American supplies. You know, such attacks are frequently attributable to hostile nation states, Russia, China, Iran, for example. With barriers to entry getting progressively lower, why would a terrorist organization kidnap for ransom when it could wreak broader havoc with higher potential gain and lower risk by holding cyber infrastructure hostage, all while reducing the risk of kinetic repercussions from the United States and its allies. And I point these three out because though we've withdrawn from Afghanistan, the event that cyber attack or excuse me, that terrorist attacks are going to come to a screeching halt or go away completely, that that is something you should not believe if anyone's uttered that kind of phrase. Terrorist attacks will continue and continue to even amp up in frequency and devastation on a handful of 
uh, reasons if America and its allies don't continue to take their foot off the gas in counterterrorism operations. And we're going to dive into how they can do that in this piece. So after 20 years of fighting terrorism, and the U.S. has spent billions of dollars and has depths of experience in military, intelligence, and its diplomatic ranks, in the fight against terrorism, it's always been biased towards action. You know, special operation guys kicking down doors and taking the fight to the enemy. And this was largely successful in targeting those individuals. You know, as the fighting dynamic changed and the enemy adapted, new tactics and tools were utilized. Now, drones, we've already hit on. Drone warfare has altered the battlefield forever. And that was a reaction to fighting terrorists in the ungoverned territories they typically operate. Over the years, America's ability to launch dangerous, long-distance operations to eliminate, eliminate terrorist leadership from the battlefield, you know, bin Laden, for example, or al-Baghdadi, that's created a strong confidence by the American people for its military to keep them safe from terrorist attacks. Now, the challenge for Americans is to grasp, though our military's counterterrorism capabilities are effective, and the terrorism problem, it's only grown, and it's become more dangerous. According to Lieutenant General Michael Nagata, he retired 38 years in the U.S. Army, has a tremendous um, uh, example of leadership in D.C. And he writes that the key to unlocking this confusion about Americans thinking that we're safe from terrorism, it's, the key to unlocking that confusion and that disappointment, it lies in the difficult acknowledgement that the U.S. government has consistently misapprehended what kind of effects various counterterrorism endeavors are most likely to create. First, too many counterterrorism practitioners have failed to grasp what the most likely strategic effects will be from the skills and tools that the United States has invested most heavily in. You know, what most in the counterterrorism community describe as kinetic CT, kinetic counterterrorism capabilities and operations. And secondly, a, a substantial body of both counterterrorism and counterinsurgency literature since 9-11, it typically conveys that the use of kinetic instruments, while often necessary in these types of struggles, it only buys time and space for other primarily civilian efforts. You know, in concept, these non-kinetic CT, civilian efforts, they must be the principal means by which we undo the various political, societal, ideological, religious, or cultural conditions that foster the emergence and spread of terrorism. And he continues to describe how many extraordinarily skilled and courageous foreign service officers, USAID practitioners, messaging and information operations operators, and other non-kinetic practitioners and leaders are too often underappreciated, undervalued, and perennially receive neither the resources nor the kinds of sustained and risk-tolerant policy support that kinetic counterterrorism practitioners have become accustomed to. This largely explains why kinetic counterterrorism practitioners will eventually come to call just kinetic counterterrorism operations as kind of being like we're mowing the grass. You know, the grass always comes back. Now, Nagata recommends that the U.S. acknowledge the lack of emphasis on the non-kinetic resources to countering terrorism directly or indirectly, indirectly supporting groups to counter violent extremist movements. And implementing online tools to defeat and deter extremist websites on the deep and dark web to eliminate those recruiting campaigns that target young fighters to join the ranks 
of an extremist organization. This is his opinion on what countering terrorism operations should look like moving forward. It has to be a balance between special operation units kicking down the doors and taking the fight to the enemy, as well as those non-kinetic solutions to alter the landscape, not allowing terrorist groups to recruit young, um, loyal fighters. Now, those are the approaches to counterterrorism moving forward, and those are very tactical-level solutions. Now, when we look at, more broadly, the greater power competition between the United States and other great, country, great powers operating in the world, um, much like a, providing a more holistic approach to counterterrorism, the counterterrorism fight, the U.S. has to determine how it's going to engage with other great powers around the globe, since so often terrorism affects all types of governments, democracies and non-democracies alike. Now, one of the biggest questions circulating through political commentators is since the U.S. withdrew from Afghanistan, is how will countries like Russia and China engage there moving forward? Each of these countries views America's withdrawal as a strategic power vacuum and would like to forward their own interests in the region. In order for the U.S. to defend its own national security from future terrorist attacks and compete against other great powers for influence, the use of partnerships and economic tools like sanctions, these are going to be critical in those kind of efforts moving forward. According to Ambassador Nathan Sales, when we first consider partnerships, you know, counterterrorism is a comparative advantage of the United States. Using a combination of civilian and military assistance, the United States can offer frontline states capabilities that China, Russia, and other rivals just can't approach. Let's take Africa, for example. It's, Africa is a particularly important theater for U.S. counterterrorism assistance, and both because the continent faces a staggering array of terrorist threats and because China sees it as a central to its Belt and Road Initiative. You've heard me talk about this in previous episodes. In countries like Kenya and Somalia, for example, The United States trains law enforcement to respond to terrorist attacks and collect evidence for use in criminal prosecutions. While in Morocco, Senegal, and other countries, the United States provides training and equipment to boost airport security. Significantly, the United States has the same goal as its African partners for frontline states to be able to defend themselves on their own and not be perpetually dependent on the United States. And that's in marked contrast to China, whose debt trap diplomacy just creates these vassals. You know, secondly, Sales points out that counterterrorism's cooperation can relieve strains that arise in important bilateral relationships. And counterterrorism can function as an escape valve of cooperation to mutual advantage during moments of friction on other issues with allies and to a lesser extent with competitors as well. Counterterrorism efforts can advance the United States' strategic objectives around the globe. They can cement relationships with existing and potential partners and relieve those tensions in important bilateral relationships and impose costs on adversaries. Let's take an example. The Philippines president, his name is President Duterte, he often has sought great distance from the United States since he took office in 2016. Yet, Counterterrorism cooperation between Washington, D.C. and Manila has helped maintain stability in this strategic relationship. It's particularly the significant support the United States provided in 2017 to help the Philippines government defeat ISIS fighters who had taken control of uh, Marawi City. 
And counterterrorism, it can also be used to diffuse tensions with rivals, you know, much like arms control in the Cold War, although here the record it's more mixed. In 2020, following years of disagreement, the United States and Russia worked together to impose the first ever United Nations sanctions on ISIS regional affiliates. But this breakthrough has not led to a better bilateral counterterrorism cooperation, let alone improved overall relations, because Russia has not been willing to change its malign behavior. And on, again, off again, kind of counterterrorism dialogue with Russia has paused when it failed to produce meaningful reciprocal contributions from Moscow, and when Russia continued to falsely insist that the United States somehow created ISIS. Now, as for China, Washington has quietly declined to revive a similar dialogue amid Beijing's use of counterterrorism as a pretext to commit genocide against the Uyghur Muslims of Xinjiang province. Now, for counterterrorism to be meaningful lubricant, rivals must have a shared understanding of the problem and a willingness to work towards similar goals. And those conditions have proven elusive with China. Final point here, counterterrorism tools, and this is particularly like sanctions, they can be used to impose costs on rival states when their actions meet the applicable legal standards. Beyond denying adversaries use of the U.S. and our international financial systems and access to resources, and terrorism sanctions can also carry substantial messaging value. They mark the targets as international pariahs, further reducing some of some companies' willingness to do business with them. The United States in 2020s they designated the Russian Imperial Movement as a foreign terrorist organization. This was the first ever U.S. designation of a white supremacist terrorist had the secondary benefit of drawing attention to a group that has operated on Russian soil, seemingly with the Kremlin's approval, and that Moscow has used as a proxy in its ongoing aggression in Ukraine's Donbass region. So though the intent of counterterrorism operations are to defeat terrorist enemies, it can also help fulfill the strategic geopolitical goals. And I've outlined how the fight against terrorism has changed and will continue to adapt as the battlefield changes. You know, additionally, I think we can grasp how the U.S. can engage with other great powers by aligning our mutual interest of eliminating terrorist attacks. You know, recently, I assume anyone's listening, they've heard the news, or in the news, this phrase, over the horizon, over the horizon capabilities. So let me explain. With Biden pulling out all troops out of Afghanistan, his idea to maintain an ability to counterterrorism inside the borders of Afghanistan is to have military bases in surrounding countries like Qatar, for example, where U.S. military assets can launch operations from Qatar into Afghanistan. Now, Biden has touted this ability since there are no American troops in Afghanistan. Let, let's, let me quickly play you a clip from the Department of Defense describing a recent drone attack, which highlights the intent of over-the-horizon capabilities. U.S. military forces uh, conducted an over-the-horizon counterterrorism uh, operation uh, against an ISIS-K planner uh, and facilitator. The airstrike occurred in the Nangarhar province of Afghanistan. I can confirm, as more information has come in, that two high-profile ISIS targets were killed and one was wounded. And we know of zero civilian casualties. Without specifying any future plans, 
I will say that we will continue to have the ability to defend ourselves and to leverage over-the-horizon capability to conduct counterterrorism operations as needed. So, for example, August 27th drone strike in Afghan's Nangarhar province, which the Pentagon says killed two ISIS militants. It's an example of how over-the-horizon can be effective. But two days later, another drone strike killed 10 civilians after overhead surveillance mistook water canisters for explosives, according to a New York Times investigation. And this tragically captured the limitations of long-range intelligence in the final hours of the U.S. presence in Afghanistan. So when we're thinking about over-the-horizon capabilities, the biggest challenge for this capability is, frankly, the distance and the airspace that has to be covered. There's a lot of permissions that have to go and in, are involved with flying an American drone over other countries' airspace. And in any type of military operations, the longer the distance is from point A to point B, there's just more opportunities for things to go wrong. So now, with America not on the ground, with any intelligence, any type of military or diplomatic personnel, I sadly say that these terrorist groups they're going to be strengthened in Afghanistan. Whatever their size is now, it will grow and it will increase and their capabilities will increase slowly, maybe quickly over time. So I have to ask, are we ready as a country for a resurgence of transnational Islamist extremist terror that we faced in this country and elsewhere, you know, at the hands of Al-Qaeda, ISIS, their affiliates and their followers? The lack of U.S. and allied and even Afghan government eyes and ears on the ground collecting intelligence due just to this complete withdrawal, it will almost certainly lead to just glaring gaps and in indications and even warnings of terrorist oper- operations. This over-the-horizon capability for the U.S. assets to identify and strike threats quickly in Afghanistan, it's, it's limited. And like I mentioned, it's constrained primarily by airspace access issues. This policy that Biden administration is looking at in Afghanistan, it's kind of akin to going back 20 years ago before 9-11. We're watching and acting from afar against some ominous threat. I had to say, going back to these days, this is not a policy we should be looking forward to. I mean, what kind of devastation do we have to experience as a nation, as a world, to identify we don't have the luxury of not engaging abroad and having four troops abroad. This is just the world we inhabit. We have to be willing to go into that fight. And this kind of pivots us into the most likeliest and most dangerous courses of actions in this fight against terrorism moving forward. So for the most likeliest course of action, in my assessment, the United States will maintain presence and enhance relationships via bilateral training with current partners, and that's especially in the Middle East and in Africa. We will continue to emphasize the effectiveness of over-the-horizon operations, which allows U.S. forces to minimize the footprint abroad. Now, the most dangerous course of action, in my assessment, is if the United States fails to engage in the ungoverned spaces and allow terrorist groups to operate. If we are to stress risk management of personnel and equipment over identifying and removing high-value targets from the battlefield. To me, the future safety of Americans 
from terrorism moving forward. It's going to depend on the American people's willingness to accept this war will not end. There will always be terrorists who despise our country, our values, and our people. Though we hope you know, Western-style democracy and Western values of liberty and equality and human rights spread across the world, our government has a duty to decisively engage terrorist threats around the world with four deployed military assets. Complacency and isolation are not acceptable. So thanks for tuning in this week. You can follow me on Instagram at Brief Before Impact. As always, I hope you're picking up what I'm putting down. I am Matt Parker. This is Brief Before Impact.